Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sweating the Small Stuff, a show where we sweat over the real events of Thermopylae and the story of 300. For today's episode, I, your host, Cameron Boozer-Jamari, am joined by another excellent host of another excellent podcast, the History of Persia podcast. Allow me to introduce the ever-talented Trevor Cully. Trevor, would you like to give us an introduction to yourself and your work? Hello, everyone. I am Trevor Cully, the host of the History of Persia podcast. And basically, it's just what the title says. I'm working my way through the history of the Persian empires from about 700 BC to sometime in the distant future, 700 CE. Right now, I'm working my way through the Achaemenid Persian Empire, which is best known as the one that fought wars with ancient Greece. And as I recall, you you actually have a background in history. That's part of your education and part of what you do outside of your podcast right now, right? Yes, absolutely. And I imagine a lot of our listeners probably don't know, I, Cameron Boozer-Jamari, if you couldn't tell from my last name, am in fact Persian. I have Persian heritage in my bones right now. And when I first came across your podcast, I was extremely confused and then later very delighted because you do such a good job. You're like, you're very true to like the history and facts and pieces and building a narrative from those of what ancient Persian society, ancient Persian culture was like. And I really appreciate that as someone who's never really had those opportunities to get to know my culture that well. Well, I'm really glad you're enjoying it. That's part of the goal. And I'm always surprised by the level of identification that some of the modern Persian listeners have reached out with, to me with, because to me, this seems so distant and so unrelated to anything outside of you know its relationship to other history, because that's the way it's always been framed to me. So I'm glad that I'm able to strike a chord with people who weren't taught in that really obnoxious Eurocentric way. And that is exactly why I wanted to bring you onto the show because we've, and we've been trying to negotiate this for a little while now, and I'm really glad I finally got you on because I have wanted to do an episode on 300 for as long as I can remember. And having you to like help, I know you also did one on 300 for your channel. If I recall, it's like a piece of bonus content. And it seems like a great synergy, a great opportunity to actually get to reach out to you, learn from you, and also just share how maybe one of the most well-known movies from the year 2007 might not have been that accurate. Yeah, I think it's like, what, this into Iron Man. <laughs> yeah, there's there's some real contenders, some real Oscar winners from that year. <laughs> so yeah, let's do a quick recap. And I think, weirdly enough, when I was researching this myself, it became a, a bit of its own rabbit hole. So 300, for those of you who don't know, is a movie from 2007 based on a graphic novel from 1998 created by Frank Miller and Lynn Varley. That is about the battle at Thermopylae. So for even more context, that is probably one of the better known historic battles of Western culture where the Spartans, 300 Spartans, hence the name of the graphic novel, go up against hordes, millions of Persians as they have to hold the hot gates, Thermopylae, in order to save the very essence of Greek society. And that incredibly romantic story is based on an actual event, the actual Battle of Thermopylae from, I believe it was 480 BC. And feel free to correct me on any of this. I defer to you, our Persian expert here. Nope, that one's right. All right. Now, that actual story, is it was an actual historic event, and it's been, I guess, popularized. It became famous because it was recorded by Herodotus, who is famed for being one of the first people to take a truly investigative approach at recounting history, whereas up until this point in human history, a lot of human history was in the form of myth-making. 
it was more stories than it was actual investigation of events and recountings and firsthand accounts. Yeah, well, Herodotus is a bit of a cultural roller coaster because he starts off in ancient Greece. He's the father of history. He's the first person to really write in this prose narrative style about events in the past that's not about myth-making. And then already by the time you get to like ancient Rome, people are accusing him of making it all up. He's a liar. He's just including myths and legends in his stories. It's not true. Then you get to modern archaeology and we're starting to rethink a lot of the criticisms of Herodotus from the last couple thousand years. So turns out he actually was sort of the father of history and the father of lies angle has been getting gradually diminished, though there's still some crazy stories in there like gold digging ants in ancient India. The reason Herodotus is actually a really important person to bring up here is because this this battle is the weirdest thing to actually care about when you think of all the things that happened during the Greco-Persian War. So for those of you who don't know, at one point there was this big empire called the Persian Empire. And it was ruled by a series of kings. And it was weirdly one of the chillest empires in all of history when we compare it to a lot of the other ones. In that they didn't have slavery. When they took over a new province or kingdom, they didn't actually take over anything. They didn't even force their own religion and culture on them. They basically were like, you pay taxes, you don't revolt, you help us when we need help, and you can basically live your lives exactly how you were before. Yeah, basically that checks out. A lot of it gets played up with the Persians more than it does with others, like the slaves thing and the religion thing. There were slaves. It's just there was never a system of slavery. The kings didn't have slaves. The nobles didn't have a lot of slaves. But it's not that the slave trade was gone. And I just like to stress that because it gets brought up as this great example when it's not quite there. Yes, I realized almost as I said it, that might have been a drastic oversimplification because I do know as they did conquer places because they were so chill with not wanting to force themselves on other people. There were some places where they turned a blind eye because the act of liberation might have been, I guess, a little too much for being able to keep those people copacetic with the greater Persian Empire. Although I do recall there's like one of everyone's favorite stories when they like to tout the Persians as being liberators was that they freed the Jews of Babylonia, didn't they? Yes, that one is, as far as anybody can tell, that one's 100% true. They said to all of the people who had been sent into exile by the Babylonians and the Assyrians, all right, if you want you can go home. Now, as far as anybody knows, I think the Jews are the only ones who ever actually took them up on that offer. And it took them almost 100 years before anybody actually started making the trek back to Judea. But Cyrus the Great does get the notable epitaph, I guess, of being the only non-Jewish Messiah in the entire Bible. So points for that. And I mean, it wasn't just that like it was a good thing to do. It was also he got this buffer state that anyone who was coming after Persia would have to go through their ally first. And so it really, like, it was in a way strategic. But this is all to say, Persians were building an empire for a while. And finally, the Persian Empire expands to the point where they're knocking on Greece's door. And this is more or less what it becomes the catalyst for what will become the Battle of Thermopylae and the Greco-Persian War. In that as the Persians are approaching, there is this moment where the Greeks are actually trying to figure out what to do about it. Because... As I understand it, Greeks, it's easy for us to think in the classic sense that like there is a sense of identity in every culture. It's easy for us to think that like if you say you're American, you're American. If you say you're Italian or whatever, you're Italian. But the Greeks at this time, they weren't Greek. They were a series of 
city-states that each ruled themselves. And a lot of them didn't even think of themselves as quote-unquote Greek. They A lot of them actually identified with Persians more than they did with Greeks. So when they saw this, they weren't like super worried about it because at the same time, Persians were basically like, if you're chill with us, we're chill with you. So there doesn't need to be a battle. Yeah, Persia had basically been hanging out on Greece's doorstep in Macedonia for 40 years at this point. So the Greeks were used to them. They had been there. They were trading partners. And the idea of Greece was this really complicated thing. They all had the same language, more or less, and they all had the same gods, more or less, and they went to sporting events together. And that was basically what made you Greek. Mm -hmm. But you've got thousands, literally thousands of different cities all governing themselves spread out over modern day Greece and a lot on the coast of what's now Turkey. And then a few hundred colonies spread out over the entire Mediterranean Sea. So Greece was this really vague, nebulous idea that mostly referred to a shared religious concept more than any kind of national identity, the way we might think of like the Persian Empire or the Egyptians or something like that. And I think this is a weird moment to actually point out that there's in all of this, like the Battle of Thermopylae, all of this stuff we're actually trying to get at the meat of this episode. It is a inciting moment. It's one of the, like the first shots of the Greco-Persian War in that this is when the Persians who are putting down revolts and being really rowdy, was it the Macedonian Peninsula? Is that what that landmass is? Oh, yeah. Just coming into Greece, basically. There's a name for the peninsula that nobody ever uses, but Greece. And then they have the little square hanging off at the end. That's the Peloponnese. But Persians never made it that far. Exactly. Because a lot of stuff would happen in between. Yeah. Well, there's a, yeah, there's a whole multi-year war in the middle of all of this that gets overshadowed by Thermopylae because somebody made movies about it. So yes, your your point about how like these are loosely connected states is an important thing because the greater context of what makes Thermopylae so interesting is the fact that it is a weird cliff note of history that has so much attention and it's a loss. Like it's imagine there's a specific battle like the Battle of the Alamo or something where like they lose, but it's so ingrained into the psyche of who these people later become because of how it is glorified and exemplifies this it is a narrative. It may be one of the first real examples of a historic narrative. And I think this is where Herodotus gets a lot of flack is because why is the Battle of Thermopylae so important in the context of the Greco-Persian War when it is self, like there is a bigger war. There are lots and lots of battles over years that happen between the Persians and different coalitions of Greek troops. And yet this one ragtag squad of Spartans, Athenians, Thebians, Thespians, and just assorted other Greeks holding a narrow pass is remembered as one of the most integral moments, even though in the grand scheme of the Persian advance on Greece, it meant almost nothing. Well, yeah, to the so to the Persians, it's a battle. And I think it would still have been remembered as an important moment if the Persians had won the overall war and conquered Greece, but it would have been remembered as look, this was the first piece of proof that Greece was never going to come out of this unscathed. Mm -hmm. Instead, it turns into this heroic last stand that buys time for the Greeks so that they can make their escape and refortify in the South. And it's all fabricated after the fact in hindsight to explain why they lost this first battle when it had supposedly the army that had become known as the best fighting force in Greece over the course of the war leading the charge. But that's the thing is that the Spartans were the best fighting force in Greece after the war. Mm -hmm. They were strange and militaristic and known for their fighting before the 
Persians invaded, but they didn't have that place in Greek culture that they had in the aftermath until they had started actually beating the Persians. And I think this is a good moment to actually now talk about our party. So we gave a little flavor on Persia. So they're this big empire that are trying to expand. They're trying to be chill, but at the same time, they also want to grow. At the same time, of the Greeks, the two biggest parties who are not happy that Persia is on their doorstep are Sparta in Athens. On the one hand, Spartans, everyone knows Sparta as this just like, oh, Spartans are the best fighters. Spartans are, like there's literally Halo, it's an entire video game where they glorify Thermopylae so much that the super soldiers in it are called Spartans. And then there's a lot of lore around it. But in reality, Spartan society was incredibly militaristic and borderline eugenic. Like, they would inspect children at birth, and if a child wasn't up to snuff, they would just get rid of it right there as a baby. And then on top of that, they had a lot of slaves. In fact, I think at the time the Persians were invading, there was nearly a 6 to 1 or 7 to 1 slaves to actual Spartans in their society because so much of Spartan culture was this helot class that they had more or less amassed. Yeah, the Helots are this ridiculous piece of Greek and Spartan history. The Spartans conquered all of their neighbors and turned them into slaves. Mm -hmm. It's almost more like what we might call serfs in history because they were sort of tied to the land, but they were tied to the land through the ownership of the Spartans. It's its own very unique form of slavery, but it's definitely still slavery. They were bought, they were sold, and... Part of becoming a Spartan soldier for many young Spartans was a time where you were supposed to go out and patrol the roads. And if you found any helots out after dark, you killed them. Like it was this brutal system that enabled the Spartans to focus entirely on military affairs. But the catch was that they were never really able to go very far from home because if they left, there would be a rebellion. Exactly. And actually, I think that brings us to another part of Spartan society, which is Spartans were actually weirdly good diplomats with their neighbors. So they did conquer and enslave a lot of their immediate neighbors, but they also worked to create pacts with their slightly further away neighbors. So they had a buffer zone because Spartans were so good at combat, not to go off and fight wars, but to basically keep their own surf class in check, exactly like you said. And so this idea that Spartans are these incredible noble warriors might be a bit of an anachronism in terms of historic context. Yeah, it's this interesting gap because they were the most accomplished army in Greece for a time, but also they were the only standing professional army. So everybody else in Greece would gather up all of the citizen men and some of the other people who were willing to be hired out to fight and then form that army as needed on an ad hoc basis. Mm -hmm. The Spartans were the only ones really maintaining an army full time. So, of course, they were the the more accomplished fighters. They were the only ones practicing all the time. Mm -hmm. And then that actually brings us to the actual hated neighbors of Spartans, the Athenians. They were the other big player because while Spartans had incredible military strength in terms of their ground troops, Athenians were incredible mariners and actually turned a lot of their own local resources into an opportunity to grow a very powerful navy and become traders and seafarers. And what is interesting is that even though you want to think that Greeks would at least get along enough with each other, Spartans sort of hated Athenians because of their democracy. And you have to remember, when we say democracy, we're not talking about like everyone gets a vote. We're talking about 30% of like all males got a vote. But this idea of democracy, Spartans still found it very threatening because they were a dual monarchy. They basically had 
two king leaders and democracy undermines the very way that they manage their own population with its large serf class. Not to say that Athenians didn't have slaves. If I recall, Athenians also had a more or less serf class, but it was to a far less degree. I think it was almost one-to-one by the time Thermopylae is happening. Yeah, the Athenians at this point in history are kind of weird to think about because of the way we think about them the rest of the time. So much of our idea of what Athens was like is projected backwards from things that happened after this. So they had just developed their navy around the time of the wars with Persia in response to the first Persian invasion a generation earlier. And they hadn't really interacted with Sparta much. They were just kind of geographically isolated from one another and didn't have to acknowledge each other very often until suddenly they were allies in this coalition and they realized they didn't get along at all. Mm -hmm. And after this point, I do want to point out just because this is one of those things that I like to harp on, Athens' slave class exploded dramatically after this as they grew in power and wealth and started interacting with more of the world. It really repaints Hercules, doesn't it? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, Her- Hercules was supposedly the ancestor of the Spartan kings. Both lines of kings claim descent from Hercules himself, you know, just to tack on to that warrior mentality. <laughs> okay, man, now I got to read up on my Greek history. I-, I think you pointed out very well. There's like this weird unease between the Athenian representatives and the Spartan representatives. And the people at the coalition right now are Themistocles of Athens and Leonidas. And they're both arguing why Greece actually wants, like all of them kind of want to keep Persia out. And one of the arguments they keep saying is like, this is to fight against Persian slavery, which is, as we pointed out earlier, Persians weren't that big on slaves. There was definitely slavery within the empire, but it wasn't to the same degree. It wasn't built into the culture and the core Persians... They themselves didn't have slaves. But in this context, when they refer to slavery, they're referring to Greek self-determinism, which is ironic because of how many slaves the Greeks actually had. Yeah, I'm sure the Persian word for peasant, which was bondica, which literally means bondsman, wasn't helping their case very much at this point in history. But yeah, the Greeks, when they mean Persian slavery, they're talking about how, A, they don't want anybody telling them what to do. And B, how the Persians don't have a citizen class. There's no electoral body. There's no popular participation. It's 100% absolute monarchy and representatives of the the king tell you what to do. The Greeks had abolished monarchy and absolute rule in most of the mainland at this point. Sparta was one of the only kingdoms still on the, the Greek mainland. There were a few scattered on islands and places, but for the most part, you had at least some kind of oligarchy. And in Athens, you had the popular assembly and popular vote and everything. So the Persian system was very threatening to some of the ideas that had developed in Greece. And with, with all this at their back, they come up with a plan of sorts of how they can basically push back. They're basically pleading with this coalition, like we, if we work together, we can push back the Persians and save us from this form of slavery. And it's a more or less two-pronged solution they come up with. Leonidas and the Greeks are there to hold Thermopylae and a force that is not 300 Spartans, but actually 7,000 Hellenic allies from different Greek city-states and 300 Spartans. And in order to hold off Persia's sizable navy, because they also had boats and could just sail around, the Athenians, using their maritime power, would lead another battle against the Persian navy in order to... And this was the funniest thing to me. 
they were basically buying time so that the rest of Greece would come fight them. Not really because Greece needed to mobilize, but because the Greeks, because they were kept together through this loose association of religious observation and worship, they were all celebrating a festival for their respective gods that they felt they had to do it even in the face of this imposing empire because they thought the gods were more dangerous than the people literally at their doorstep. Well, yeah, this is such a bizarre moment in Greek history because half the Greeks, mostly the ones in the north closer to the Persian border, side with Persia right off the bat. They see this army coming through and even big cities like Thebes are just like, nope, we'll be Persian now, totally have some dirt, have some water, we submit. Meanwhile, in the south, you have a faction in Athens that's trying to say, no, no, we're going to we're going to side with the Persians. We want to vote to side with the Persians and they get shut down by everybody who's there. And other cities that are rivals with cities in the coalition start siding with the Persians just to piss off their neighbors. So you have that going on and you have the Olympics going on and the Greeks aren't supposed to go to war during the Olympics. So you have that. And then in Sparta specifically, you have another festival that happens to once in a blue moon line up with the Olympics called the Carnea. And that means the Spartans aren't allowed to leave at all. And they have to make a special exception to allow just 300 of them to go anywhere. And that's what is so wild about this moment in history. It's like it's such a weird, perfect storm of events that only the small force can go and basically buy time for everyone else in Greece to party while they fight off literally at least 200,000 strong Persian force. And now I think we can talk a little more about this special moment, Thermopylae. Because the reason they chose to hold this place was it was so narrow. It was only a few men could be a breath because of how ragged the terrain was and how hard it was to move through the pass itself. The 300 Spartans were more or less there to be commanders. They were also fighting, but they were commanding and they were also getting these Greeks into a very popular formation they would use all the time called the phalanx, which was in a way very representative of Spartan culture in that a squad of soldiers were taught to move and act as a singular unit. Like it wasn't like you had a bunch of guys who were going to run and stab and slash. It was like they're going to be all their interlock shields, interlock spears, and they're going to stay and hold this spot. And they're going to do this in rotations to buy as much time as they can for the rest of the Greeks. Yeah, this was the big difference between the Persians and the Greeks. The Persians favored archery and cavalry tactics and were generally pretty lightly armored. They, they had like wickered shields. Yeah, which are shockingly effective against things like arrows at long distance and swords because wicker actually holds together really well. But a four pound heavy spear point just punches right through them whenever they get close. Mm -hmm. But none of those tactics work in that little narrow pass. And if you go to Thermopylae today, it's much wider because the sea has receded in that area of Greece. But at this point, you could maybe fit 20-ish men abreast, packed close together in the phalanx style with the overlapping shields. Nobody could get through that. There were, And at high tide, there were probably some of them standing ankle deep in the water. And this, this might be the moment that most people remember from the movie. So the Persians, this is where all the artistic liberty comes from. It's like, it's, this isn't just a story. This is a recounting of the story from, was it Dilios? Is how, that how you pronounce his name? Delios, played by David Wenham better known as Faramir from Lord of the Rings, <laughs> was, I think, the most notable thing he'd done at this point. And he acts as the film's narrator and a character in the story. So he's the lone survivor who gets sent back to tell the story of Thermopylae in Sparta and rally support 
for the fight against the Persians. So he's telling his troops at some nebulous point in the future before a fight with the Persians, this great story of how Leonidas sacrificed himself and the other 299 technically Spartans at Thermopylae. Yeah, and this is like a weird point because it's very important to keep this frame in mind because when you watch the movie and when you think about the facts that we're trying to go through right now, like a lot of stuff is missing. For instance, in his version, there are 300 Spartans and no other Hellenic allies. Everything about the Persians is grotesque and gargantuan. Like the immortals, their elite soldiers aren't like normal people. They're like a necromancer raised oil mud monsters to fight as soldiers and they have no face. And the Persians have a massive million people army with elephants and crazy contraptions and all sorts of stuff that honestly, there's no justification why they would even want to take stuff like that through a pass this narrow. There's like no reason for all this effort if you were going to be a invading army with a big navy. Well, that's the thing is the plan had obviously been, we'll take things by sea, but the Athenians turn up. And that's what I think is the biggest shame of this movie is that simultaneous to the Spartans and their allies fighting on land, you have a big naval battle going on right next to them. Parallel with Thermopylae in the sea, you have the Persian Navy trying to bypass an Athenian blockade. But in this movie, ignoring the absence of any ships whatsoever, you have this issue is it's like the, a fifth hand retelling. You have Herodotus getting interviews from people who were actually there. And then 2000 years later, Frank Miller tells the story, but he tells it through the voice of Delios, who is intentionally exaggerating things. And then you have Zack Snyder a decade later retelling the story told by Frank Miller through Delios, taken from Herodotus, taken from other people. So you have this whole game of telephone going on just to get to this movie in the first place. I think it's important to understand the actual events of the actual battle were across basically three days, the first and second day. The Persians are more or less kept at bay. The Greek phalanx is doing an exceptional job holding off this impenetrable force. And so it's easy to romanticize these guys as being beyond the caliber of these invaders. And they're so capable and so powerful when in reality they have chosen an excellent combat point. And there is simply no way anyone would be able to get through this. And the only reason they're able to break the Greek formation is because a Greek trader whose name I do not know comes to the Persians and tells them of a small mountain pass that was supposed to be guarded by a small detachment of Greeks who Xerxes basically assembles a squad of immortals, his elite soldiers who are themselves very capable warriors, but not strange oil demon monsters and sends them to quietly take the pass in the night and encircle the Greek forces so that they can break this hold. This, if I understand Persian combat is more or less where Persians shine. Fast moving, quick attacks, not necessarily getting bogged down by guys with giant spears. And for the most part, the Greeks who are holding this pass are not prepared. They have broken into an ad hoc camp and there's no real sense of leadership or command for this force as it's been told in history. Yeah. So this is what happens with Ephialtes is the name you were looking for. If you're following this story as someone who's seen the movie, he's the one who's the deformed hunchback who was parents spared when the Spartans said that they needed to kill him and Leonidas won't let him fight. Now, the reason Leonidas won't let him fight in the movie is actually a very good one. They make it seem like, oh, Leonidas is being cruel and throwing him out. Well, no, he just he literally can't fight in formation. You know, he's not tall enough. He can't raise his arms high enough to actually fight in the phalanx formation. So obviously he can't 
participate in that way. But historically, he was actually just some farmer who lived nearby, and the Persians gave him a big bag full of gold and said, hey, how can we get around the pass? And he said, oh, there's, there's a goat path. So really, you have to imagine like maybe two guys wide Persians sneaking over the hill to come get the Greeks. It's not dramatic in any way. <laughs> And it's also under the cover of night. You're basically watching a, I'm trying to remember in Game of Thrones, there's like a nighttime battle that is literally itself 12 seconds because no one wants to watch a bunch of guys running around in the dark stabbing at each other. But that that is a pivotal moment. They send He sends a squad of soldiers who, if you think of it, he basically says, all right, go on a hike over there and then stab anything you see and then get rid of these guys in front of me. And that is more or less what happens. There's no great glory here. But every moment up until this betrayal, this betrayal that when you look at it in the greater context of Greek history, it feels like such a betrayal. And it's so easy to vilify a guy who basically had no greater context of why are those guys and those guys fighting over there? Yeah, it was a great plan. I'm sure probably like this Greek army that had marched up into the area and picked this as their defensive location they probably didn't know that goat path was there. But the thing is, because Herodotus published this story, and it became one of the most famous battle stories in all of Western military history, it completely ruins Thermopylae for the rest of time. There have been tons of armies that have tried to hold Thermopylae as their defense of Greece over the centuries since then, because the rest of the area is so mountainous, it's really the only way through. But Everybody knows the story. So everybody just takes the goat path. Mm -hmm. So many times in history, the Macedonians do it, the Romans do it. It happened in World War II, I think, or maybe it was World War I, something like that. They just can't hold Thermopylae anymore because of Herodotus publishing the story of the first battle of Thermopylae. But I think this is a good moment to get to the last and probably most important point I want to make with this episode, which is why Thermopylae, or Thermopylae, I feel like now I have to pronounce it your way. Please don't. Well, it's the reason that has become so ingrained in Western culture is people have, I guess, accused Herodotus of making the way he frames the narrative of these historic events to be in a grander fabric of what makes a Greek Greek. Prior to this moment, Greece is just a loose amalgam of city-states that have uneasy pacts and treaties and just kind of tries to get along. But this is where Herodotus says, this is now the first time this random coalition of dudes has to go up against a truly external, powerful enemy. And this is the force by which he can define the narrative of what it is to be Greek. He more or less tries to write it in a way that paints Greeks as creative, noble, individualistic people who want their freedom and democracy having to fight against this incredible oppressive outer group that is just driven by passion over logic and wants subservience from everyone they see. And these anachronisms that make up the modern interpretation of Thermopylae and make it so enduring because it's truly this, the Greeks will die in this past to protect and maintain a democracy that they have crafted, even though that is probably not the actual truth of what happened. Yeah, so the thing to know about this, because Herodotus is embellishing in all of these different ways and changing the framing of the story from how it actually occurred, is Herodotus is writing right on the precipice of the Peloponnesian War. And that's the thing that really defines ancient, well, classical Greece as 
Athens versus Sparta. It's this big decades long conflict between the two major city states. And he's writing this history to try and avoid that coming conflict. He's trying to write a story that makes them reconcile their differences. So Athens eventually wins the war, kicks the Persians out of Greece in a naval battle, and then leads the campaign of retribution where the Athenians are actually invading Persian territory to liberate Greek cities in Anatolia, uh, modern Turkey. Mm -hmm. So he has to find a way to make the Spartans heroes in some way. So he builds up Thermopylae as this grand sacrifice and talks about how valiant and powerful the Spartan warriors are to appeal to a Spartan audience and say, look, you're all Greeks. You all want to work together And it helps him to frame the Persians as these really strong anti-Spartan villains, because at the same time, the Persian Empire has adopted a policy of, fine, if we can't conquer them, we'll just keep the Greeks fighting each other. And they throw money at the Spartans to help them fight a war with Athens. Mm -hmm. So he's doing all of this to drive the Spartans away from the Persians to make them get closer to the Athenians and make both of them look like the heroes of the last war. And of course, ultimately, he fails and it leads to almost 40 years of continuous warfare dominating most of the southern Greek peninsula. I think that may be the most important thing to take away about this is as much as we want to remember this or they want us to remember this as this pivotal moment to define Western culture and what is to be Greek and what is to be a Westerner versus these Easterners. There's just so much more that happens after like it never ends with that one moment in history because the Greco-Persian War is full of so many amazing moments, so many amazing battles, that it's weird that they're not represented in history the same way that Thermopylae is. And as you pointed out very well, this is just a small battle. This is like a smaller thing in the greater context. Like Athens as a product of the Greco-Persian Wars and its own existence is able to endure long enough for other people to learn its examples of democracy. But Athens itself doesn't actually endure that long before it, it just crumbles the way many of the other cultures in that area do as other cultures move in and out and populations move around. Yeah, the Greeks, they seem like this really timeless concept from ancient history. But about 150 years after the events we've been talking about today, the Macedonians conquer Greece and they hold out and they're a cultural staple and they influence the Macedonian-led empires. But they decline completely in political power. And then the Romans come in and they take over the area and they decline a little bit more in political power. Their language sticks around as this important cultural and learned language. But the political power of Greece vanishes over the course of the following century after the wars that we've been talking about. And it never really recovered. It's from then on, they were basically parts of empires based in Anatolia, based in what's now Turkey, really where the center of power shifted around 330 BC. All right. And actually, now that you've pointed out the Macedonians and the Romans, I I did want to point out one of my favorite things about was the Alexander the Great taking on a Greek identity, even though he's Macedonian and pushing back against the Persians is when he does this, he is so impressed with the Persian self-governance model that he more or less just keeps it in place while he's building his own empire. Yeah, completely. Alexander the Great is a great person to cap this kind of conversation off with because on one hand, he embraces being Greek. He is trying to drive Macedon to be more like Greece and you know make Macedonian culture look a little bit more Greek in the way that they act, in the way that they talk, in the way that they dress. Simultaneously, 
he gets to the Persian Empire and he's like, but what if we just do all of this, but we keep speaking Greek? So <laughs> he, he adopts the government structure. And in most of the empires that come after him, the governing sections are called satrapies, just like the Persians. And it becomes the, the model that the Greek world is based on for the next three or four hundred years, even though he originally launched his invasion of Persia, basically using the idea of getting revenge for the Persian Wars which the Greeks won as his reason that all the Greeks should follow him into Asia. And I think that is an amazing spot to end. Trevor, thank you so much for the amazing stuff you do on your podcast and your just contributions to this episode. Where where can we find your excellent content? I'm a podcast, so you can find me wherever you find podcasts. Just type in History of Persia, or you can find me on my website at historyofpersiapodcast.com. And you can find all your Swaying the Small Stuff needs at our website, smallstuff.show. Anything you want to get in touch, share your ideas on 300 or another moment from history or a movie that you think we should dive into, please let us know. I really do hope to have you back, Trevor, because I am a huge fan of your work. Obviously, I wanted you on and I really appreciate expertise. And I know there are lots of other moments in history that I really would like to discuss with you. Till then, I've been your host, Cameron Boozer-Jamir, reminding you from movies to media to the world around us, and especially Greek history, it's details like these that make it worth sweating the small stuff. <laughs> <laughs>